I think it's super interesting the way that we get our podcast ideas. I mean, it is true. We do have a kind of calendar that we try to follow, but we rarely do that because sometimes we get great ideas just from our everyday practice and everyday conversations. Sometimes we get podcast ideas from walking down a grocery store aisle and seeing what somebody is buying, like in our recent episode. <laughs> and sometimes we get ideas from our medical students and questions that they have or questions that our patients have, or like in this case for this episode, a question that a former resident has. Yep, just this morning I received a, a text from one of our former residents who just graduated, who's now in the real world taking care of patients and is doing very, very well. But she had a great question. So I got this text from Anna who said, Hey, Dr. Chapa, I've got a question. Uh, I have a patient who I think has uh, celiac disease and is pregnant. And so what do I do with that? And so, of course, my answer was, ooh, there's a lot there. <laughs> because the main thing, and I'm going to explain why in this episode, is that you've got to get this diagnosis correct. Not only is it the right thing to do for the patient for overall wellness, but because untreated celiac disease in pregnancy, here's a quick clinical pro right off the bat, can be linked to some real obstetrical complications. The good news is that when you have a diagnosis, the treatment is not even medical. It's behavioral and dietary. We're going to get into that in this episode. So in this episode, we're going to tackle celiac disease. What does that even mean? And, and why is it so confusing? Why are there so many terms for this thing? I mean, there's celiac disease, there's celiac sprue, there's tropical sprue, and then non-tropical sprue. Are those all the same thing or are they different? And what actually does ACOG say about the relationship of this condition to adverse pregnancy outcomes and testing? We're going to answer all of that in this episode. So let's cover celiac disease and OB issues right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I love medical education. I love what I do. But let me tell you what I don't like so much. When we build great relationships, great friendships with not just our medical students, but obviously with our residents, uh, and then they go, right? Our medical students, they graduate, they go off to residency, which is what they're supposed to do, um, or hopefully they go into residency. Uh, <laughs> they match into residency. And then our, our residents, right, they, they graduate residency and they go off to have their careers. That's what they're supposed to do. But man, when they leave and you have these great relationships, like, you know, specifically talking about like Dr. Analia, Arango, who texted me this morning, and then they leave. I mean, it, it's, yeah, I mean, you feel bad. I mean, I miss them. Uh, so when I get these text messages like, oh, hey, Dr. Chopper, here's what's going on. One, still feels so good. I mean, that they have that relationship, they can still reach out and ask a question. But two, 
uh, just so good to hear that they're just, you know, they're launching their career. That's what life is about. But it doesn't make it any easier. I, I hate when they leave. So on a quick message to you, so thankful for your text message. I, I sure do miss working with you. Man, there's so many names for the same condition that it gets super confusing. And that's why the literature is hard to follow because you got to put all of these things in the proper boxes, okay? So, I mean, why is this condition, this whole gluten allergy thing, even called celiac sprue? I'm going to explain that in a minute, okay? Celiac disease, where does that come from? Because that's kind of a weird term, right? Uh, and it's probably not what you think. I'm going to go over the history here in a minute. But then you have things like tropical sprue and non-tropical sprue. And those are actually uh, two different conditions. So let's just kill this right at the start, okay? For this topic, we're talking about the typical gluten allergic type of GI pathology that is called non-tropical sprue, aka celiac disease, okay, non-tropical. Because the tropical form of sprue uh, is a whole other issue. Tropical sprue uh, is typically something that is obviously found in tropical conditions, very temperate climates, uh, and it usually has to do with a malabsorption uh, GI process that is typically considered to be infectious, okay, or a combination at least of infectious organisms and environmental issues. That is tropical sprue. That is not what we're talking about here. And it's very different because tropical sprue it's treated because it's typically an infectious etiology with usually a form of tetracycline, maybe some uh, folic acid supplementation if there's a, a deficiency, which can lead to uh, a megaloblastic anemia. So tropical sprue is not what we're talking about here, okay? Non-tropical sprue is what we're talking about in this episode, which has to do with typical celiac disease that goes back to gluten, all right? And by the way, if somebody says, oh, I, you know, I only do gluten because it makes me feel better, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have celiac disease. They just feel better because gluten is rough on a lot of people's GI tract. So if they think they have a gluten allergy, this true autoimmune condition, they need to be checked for it. All right, so everybody good? So when we're talking about non-tropical or tropical, those are two different types of GI sprue or pass-through conditions, uh, and we are not focusing on the tropical variety, which is typically infectious, all right? We're talking about typical sprue, which is celiac disease, aka non-tropical sprue. All right, now that we've settled that with the two big boxes and we know what we're talking about here, let's get into the name, okay? Because that's weird, right? I mean, why don't we, why can't we just call it just GI gluten pathology or uh, gluten sensitivity syndrome or something else? And that's fine. People do use that in more common terms, but the original medical term is celiac disease. And that is nothing that is new to the 20th century. I mean, if you actually go back to some of the historic texts, I mean, this joker was around like in the first century AD, all right? That's a long time ago. Now, you can actually trace it back. There's a great history on a website called uh, uh, viomi.com, which has the history of medicine, the history of a lot of things. And I'll post that link in our reference list called the History of Celiac Disease uh, on viomi.com. And it's super interesting because one of the first writings of, that describes this, this affliction that is linked to dietary intake goes back to the first century AD by a Greek physician named Aradius of Cappadocia. 
And like, I want to be like Choppa of Texas. Don't you want that, right? Put your last name and then your place of origin. That's pretty cool, right? Choppa of Texas. That's just weird. That sounds like a restaurant. All right, so uh, Arteus of Cappadocia was a Greek physician in the first century AD who described, uh, quote, the celiac affection, end quote, not affliction, the celiac affection. I, how that came up, you, you, it's beyond me. But all to say, he described this condition of bloating and abdominal distension and pain for those who had certain kinds of uh, food intake and then had this kind of GI, basically, uh, ailment and even maladaptive presentation. How about that? So first century AD. Oh, look, there. somebody looked it up as I was talking. See, thank you for that. That's why you have a team to bring this information to you. So basically celiac, this whole term celiac is, is, is a derivative of, of things that are gluten-based. How about that? So, okay, that started in first century AD and then fast forward to 1887. So you just take somebody to look up something and go, hey, I, I think I can revive this idea because Dr. Samuel Gee, who is an English physician, gets all the attention for bringing this to highlight, bringing this to, to the press, right? Uh, giving this attention for this GI condition, but it wasn't his to begin with. So in 1887, Dr. Samuel Gee actually wrote the first, quote, modern description, end quote, of celiac disease and, and how it's affected uh, by, by certain kinds of food intake. This English doctor wrote about this celiac affection that could be cured by diet. Now, look at that. That's a pretty strong statement there, okay? Could be cured by diet. Now, this physician first presented this definition and this presentation at a lecture at a hospital for sick children in London. No, it's not a hospital for sick children. I mean, it is, but that's actually the name. It's Hospital for Sick Children in London. Now, he thought that this disease needed to be treated only through food, stating that he believed that if a person were to be cured from it, it would be because of their diet. Now, let me stop there for a minute. Wow. I mean, as, as I said before in various other podcasts, this doesn't get enough attention. I mean, I think a lot of these chronic conditions absolutely tied to diet, guys. Uh, as we've talked about on previous topics, right? I mean, this whole notion of you are what you eat, we, we've somehow lost this in our age of antibiotics and medications uh, and fancy labs. And I'm all for that. I mean, to be very clear, I'm not anti, I'm not, I don't consider myself alternative practice. I don't consider myself, um, you know, very homeopathic at all. But some of that stuff is actually pretty legit. <laughs> A lot of these things are absolutely tied to diet. And so going from the first century AD, when people were suffering from this condition, to 1887, where Dr. Samuel Gee says, man, there's something in the diet that's giving these people this, these, this very classic presentation of abdominal pain, bloating, and altered GI bowel uh, habits. How about that? So it's nothing new. So I just thought that's history. And interesting as a quick thing of history that, you know, we, we think that all these diseases are, are, you know, either made up or just discovered. They've been around for a long time. And, and thankfully, as medicine and research progresses, we know more and more about them. And so, yes, we now know that celiac disease, aka non-tropical sprue, is definitely triggered as an autoimmune condition, because it is autoimmune, uh, by dietary intake. It is almost always linked, almost uniformly, hence the gluten allergy, linked to gluten intake. 
Celiac disease is definitely considered a type of autoimmune condition that we absolutely know its trigger, all right? Because it is this gluten-sensitive enteropathy, non-tropical sprue is absolutely considered an autoimmune attack on, on the small bowel that usually leads to small bowel inflammation and villus atrophy. Now, to be clear, remember, this is not the colon, right? So this is not a large GI tract. It it's usually affects the small bowel, and it presents as a malabsorption condition that on biopsy looks like inflammation with villus atrophy on upper endoscopy. Now, we're going to talk about diagnosis here in a minute, but, but the chief hallmark here is that these symptoms, usually of abdominal bloating or pain, usually have to do with ingestion of gluten. Remember that gluten is a protein that's found in wheat. It's found in rye and in barley. Now, if you're listening to this again and you're thinking, what the heck are you talking about? This is a GI issue. It has nothing to do with what we do as women's health care. Uh, it does. And I'm going to explain why in a minute because this even has some potential infertility issues and recurrent pregnancy loss implications. All right. Now, the data isn't all that clear, but there are some associations there that we're going to discuss. And as we've mentioned, there is an issue here with undiagnosed and untreated uh, celiac disease in pregnancy and certain complications, okay? So this is why it's important to just do a thorough history. And I know we have to screen for everything. Now we have to screen also for obstructive sleep apnea, for heaven's sakes. I mean, it's like there's so many questions to ask. But even how their GI function is and if they have any food intolerance issues is super important. Because outside of things like lactose intolerance, that's more of a bother. Uh, gluten intolerance, if there really is this gluten enteropathy, aka celiac disease, we, we got to get a true diagnosis on that. And while history can be helpful, it does require specific testing for this condition so we can get this diagnosis correct. And it does have implications for us as women's healthcare providers because, as you would guess, there is a higher predominance of this gluten insensitivity issue in the female population over males, all right? So it is our patient population. And although the mean age at diagnosis is around 45, this condition can be present across the whole spectrum of ages, starting in childhood to adolescence to the teen years, even over 60. Now, of course, if somebody has this over 60 years of age, you got to rule out much more serious conditions like GI cancers, right? Especially if they go, oh, I get these weird, you know, alternating bouts of diarrhea and constipation. You got to make sure it's not uh, IBD, okay, inflammatory bowel disease or some kind of true uh, colonic cancer. But the incidence crosses all ages and it also is significant to do a family history because if there's a first degree relative with it, then that genetic uh, priming, that genetic predisposition could put our patient at risk as well. So don't forget to ask about GI history, dietary history and intolerances, and also family history. In terms of the actual distortion and attack of the, of the small bowel, remember that this affects the mucosa of the small intestine, okay? This is not through and through, like a through and through lesion through all the layers. It doesn't go to, all the way to the serosa, right? This is mucosal base because of the irritant in the lumen, aka gluten. This affects the mucosa, all right? Deeper layers are spared. So that's an important issue when we talk about biopsy and informal diagnosis. 
But there really is a spectrum of severity of histopathological changes uh, based on the patient's symptoms that can be found, right? So typically, you can do a biopsy just based on, on an antibody screen, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But since we're talking about the true biopsy diagnoses, obviously, this can be done on endoscopy, okay? So biopsy samples of the duodenum obtained during upper endoscopy can find these, these pathognomonic changes that point the the physician, the healthcare provider, towards a diagnosis of of celiac disease or sprue. Okay, so if you ever asked, what does that look like? Well, we talked about the inflammation at the mucosal layer. There's also atrophy of the intestinal villi. There's increased presence of those inflammatory cells and reduced thickness of the mucosa. All of these things point to a maladaptive condition that together with history, that's where they point the clinician towards this diagnosis, okay? And it's not just these true anatomical changes. I mean, even in in ACOG's document, and I'll give you that uh, reference here in a minute, they discuss that this actually has has things at the cellular level, not just gross uh, abnormalities to the villi, but even at the cellular level, even tight junctions between the enterocytes can be compromised. And that's how the gut epithelium becomes leaky that causes this unregulated exchange of fluids and antigens that further incite inflammation. Okay, so this is where you get this inflammatory reaction that then causes this secretory type of diarrhea. And because of that, you can get chronic malabsorption if the condition isn't recognized and goes for a long time without proper attention, okay? So malabsorption can result because of the small bowel mucosal damage, and and there's loss of, of the enzyme processes that function there, all right? So this is why it's not just an anatomical issue, it's a digestive issue at the cellular level because it messes up with the digestive enzymes. And so what happens? Well, you get this abdominal pain, you get bloating, and you can get this secretory style of diarrhea. A lot of this info is in ACOG's Clinical Update in Women's Healthcare that came out just uh, summer of last year in June of 2022 under their lower gastrointestinal tract disorders uh, topic, okay? And again, I'll post that reference online, but it is from June 2022, the Clinical Update in Women's Healthcare. Uh, and it in that document, it's in that document where it states this is one of the only autoimmune disorders that has a distinct environmental trigger. And that environmental trigger, of course, is diet. Because even though we don't know exactly how it works and how gluten messes up those cells and causes inflammation, we know that it is absolutely tied to this intake uh, of gluten uh, products, food products, causing this as, as a door opener to this condition. So as ACOG states, quote, celiac disease is the only autoimmune disorder with a clearly identified environmental trigger, end quote. Now, before we get into the non-invasive ways to diagnose this thing, because you don't always need endoscopy. Endoscopy is great, uh, and it's super important to get the right diagnosis, right? Because, oh, I've got IBS. How many people throw that around? Oh, it's IBS. My IBS hurts. But do you really have a true diagnosis? IBS and celiac disease, FYI, have a lot of similar conditions. So, and and patients ask all the time, and even friends ask all the time, oh, can you tell me if I have IBS or not? No. Because you need a specific antibody test for that, uh, and you need endoscopy to make sure it's nothing else. So IBS typically, which gets thrown around a lot, 
Remember that IBS irritable bowel syndrome is different than IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease, right? That's Crohn's ulcerative colitis. Then now majority of those are treated with biologics. But IBS shouldn't be thrown around so lightly. I mean, that requires a, a thorough GI workup and an evaluation to rule out other things. And, and I've got friends that ask, hey, does this sound like IBS to you? My answer is, I don't know. You got to go get checked for that, man. <laughs> I'm not going to diagnose you over dinner. I love with that. I'm eating dinner and somebody asks me, do you think I got IBS? Are you serious? I just want to eat my food. I want to enjoy my food and not talk about work for heaven's sakes because I get it all the time. Do you get that? I mean, does that only happen to me? I mean, it's friends. It's my wife's friends. Oh, my God. I just want to go out and not talk about work. So my short answer is, look, I get your symptoms. I get that. You got to go get checked because the last thing I want to do is tell you you've got IBS and you really have celiac disease because the two are very similar, okay? So IBS, once you've ruled out all the other stuff, which is what you're supposed to do, then you can go, yeah, okay, I think your history is pretty compatible with IBS. And, and, And let's get rid of some notions, right? Just like with PCOS. Not every patient with PCOS is obese and hirsute. That's our own biases, right? Same thing with celiac disease. If you've always learned, like I did, oh, celiac disease, they're just very sickly looking, right? They're so frail. I mean, they're malabsorption for heaven's sake. So, you know, they're just very puny. They look sickly. That may be the case. That is one phenotypic expression of this. But not everybody with celiac disease looks that way. So as ACOG states, I love this sentence because it really tackles this inherent bias that we all have of certain disease states. Um, Not everybody fits into a box. ACOG states, quote, The previous notion that patients with celiac disease typically present with diarrhea and weight loss has been rebuked based upon many patients' presentation with constipation and who are also overweight. End quote. And also remember that this disease can also be clinically silent. They may not have any symptoms at all. So this is why this is super complicated. And if you're asking, well, if they don't have any symptoms, does this really matter? Uh, well, yeah, kind of it does because untreated celiac disease as an autoimmune condition has also been linked to a bunch of other things, including uh, heart disease and infertility, which we're talking about in a minute. It's been linked to uh, iron deficiency anemia. That could be an extra GI manifestation that without some other source, I mean, you got to look to the GI tract. Uh, of course, it can be even uh, presenting with neurological symptoms. We're going to get into that in a minute, mainly because of of some vitamin deficiencies. So yes, I mean, this can actually present uh, in a variety of different ways. So when we say lack of symptoms, I'm talking about lack of GI symptoms, but that's why it's important to to not put people in these boxes, right? Oh, IBS or celiac disease gives you diarrhea and abdominal pain. Not always. I mean, sometimes it can present first thing as neurological symptoms or a skin condition. Uh, and I think I talked about this in under the OB dermatoses episode that we did some time ago because GI conditions, specifically celiac sprue, has also been linked to certain kinds of, of skin manifestations uh, like a herpetiform rash or herpetiform uh, 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 lesions. How about that? So it's important to think, right? We always learn, oh, skin is skin, GI is GI, and the two shall never mix. But look at acanthosis nigricans. Right. Acanthosis nigricans is a skin saying, hey, I'm insulin resistant. Uh, so it's important to know that these things cross systems. And so while they may be asymptomatic in one box, like no GI bloating, no constipation, if they have weird neurological symptoms that 
you just can't explain by anything else. That could be a, a vitamin deficiency linked to a malabsorption condition, which could be linked to celiac disease. Is that wild or what? So the only point I'm trying to make here is that if they're asymptomatic from a GI condition, fantastic. But, but look for things outside of the box. Oh, by the way, Tangan, I'm, I'm giving all the good stuff away right now, and I'm supposed to talk about this later, but there is also a, a, an association. It's not very strong, but there is an association with, with chronic misdiagnosed or undiagnosed celiac disease in specific to certain kinds of small intestine malignancies, uh, specifically uh, 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 GI lymphomas and even non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Those have been linked to chronic gluten misdiagnosed celiac disease. So how about that? So you see how things don't live in little boxes, right? People don't live in boxes and diseases don't live in boxes. So PCOS can present with skin manifestations. Um, celiac disease may not present with GI symptoms. It could actually present with, um, with neurological conditions or um, maybe a, a, a non-Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. So these are all things that we have to consider in the bigger picture. Okay, I don't want to get in some kind of trouble here. I'm not trying to say that everything relates to diet. I'm not I'm not saying that at all, okay? I'm saying that diet has a big role in chronic diseases, but there's obviously a lot of factors. I get that. There's other environmental factors. Yes, it's true. I've said it. But ACOG does state this as well in its Women's Healthcare Update from, from summer of 2022, that sometimes they may not present with this diarrhea. Sometimes they can present with this condition with constipation. And sometimes the first manifestation uh, are these extra intestinal features that you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Let's take a look for other things. Um, so let me read you this excerpt from June of 2022 from the college, really just validating that what I said is not nuts. Quote, Apart from this distinct clinical entity, most extraintestinal manifestations of celiac disease are the result of malabsorption. For example, anemia caused by iron, folate, vitamin D, or vitamin B12 can occur. Menstrual irregularities can also be present as well. Vitamin B12 and thiamine deficiencies can also lead to neurological sequelae, such as peripheral neuropathy and ataxia. End quote. So look, yes, I get that. We don't, we're not neurologists. We don't necessarily see patients as, uh, as women's healthcare providers coming in only for ataxia. But after a complete neurological workup, which may or may not include, of course, you know, exposure to environmental elements and, and proper uh, scanning of the brain as necessary. Um, but we do have to go back to, hey, let, let's, let's do this, this vitamin panel and see if this is related to potentially some, some GI condition here. Is that wild or what? And let me go a little bit further because there is data that these menstrual irregularities, I'll go back to micronutrient uh, disturbances. I'm telling you, it's in the ACOG bulletin. Yes, that is absolutely linked to menstrual uh, irregularity. It's even linked to infertility. That's in the ACOG bulletin. I'm going to give you that data in a minute. And it's also been linked with spontaneous abortion. You're like, well, what does the GI tract have to do with spontaneous abortion? Um, a lot. And there are some in the GI world who are like, hey, everything to me is GI related. So recurrent miscarriage, that's a rule out of vitamin deficiency, micronutrient deficiency, 
and uh, celiac disease. And of course, us in OB, like, oh, it's recurrent ABs, that's antiphospholipid antibody syndrome to prove otherwise, uh, or thyroid issues or diabetes. You see how every, every, uh, every disease looks like our own little tool based on our tool belt. Is that right? Right? So if you are a carpenter, uh, every problem given can be fixed with a nail. Is that how it goes? Or something like that. You know what I'm talking about. So those in the GI world are like, oh, women's health. Yeah, it's all related to GI tract. Meanwhile, we're going, oh, recurrent miscarriage. It's either anatomical or autoimmune, like antiphospholipid syndrome uh, or an endocrinopathy. And that's all valid. But you see how we've even got to go further back because, yes, antiphospholipid antibody is considered an autoimmune condition. But even beyond that, a search for these micronutrients, again, doesn't get a lot of limelight because we're so focused on our topics as, as women's healthcare providers. So just something to consider recurrent miscarriage, infertility. Again, go back to the source. Ask about diet. Ask about uh, food intolerance because there is data that that potentially, not, and I'm not saying, please guys, that all infertility is caused by celiac disease. Not at all. I'm saying that celiac disease is absolutely a potential contributor to recurrent pregnancy loss for uh, recurrent AB and even for infertility. Alrighty, so let's get back to the ACOG document and a lot of the stuff that ACOG pulls actually pull from uh, from gastroenterology, very fittingly enough. But here's who they say really should be considered uh, candidates for screening, either by serum screening for specific antibodies that you can check for or by endoscopy with a biopsy. Now, obviously, we're not going to do that as women's healthcare providers, but, you know, family medicine, if they have scope privileges, of course, GI can do it. Um, it's to look for these things because, again, not having the diagnosis is linked to problems. I'm going to give you that data in a minute. And then once you have the diagnosis, it's potentially an easy fix. Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because you try doing a gluten-free diet. Uh, cardboard, I mean, it, everything has gluten in it. It's very hard to find things that are absolutely gluten-free. I mean, some medications have gluten capsules. So that's how deep it is. It's not just diet. It even has to do with the kind of pills that you take. So it's, it, yes, it's an easy fix. Is that, well, if gluten is making you sick, stop doing gluten. Oh, uh, okay, fine. It's like, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, then don't do that. That's the old joke. Um, so, but it is true. You can dramatically uh, get rid of these symptoms um, and improve your condition in somebody who's gluten sensitive by avoiding gluten. But it's easier said than done. Okay. So, according to ACOG, which takes the information from from gastroenterology, the following patients should be considered for testing. The first are those with chronic GI symptoms of diarrhea, abdominal discomfort, bloating, especially if they have weight loss, and who otherwise would meet criteria for irritable bowel syndrome, okay, or IBS. Remember, we said there's a big overlay between those two, so don't call it IBS unless you've ruled out celiac disease. Next are those who present with symptoms that are concerning for malabsorption, which can include a malnutrition, a severe weight loss that's not explained by a malignancy or an endocrine issue, those who have severe iron deficiency anemia or a folate deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency, they have neurological issues like we've talked about, peripheral neuropathy or ataxia. And here's what ACOG says, those who present with fertility problems. See, I'm not nuts. I mean, those that have infertility, you could potentially check for for sprue, it's in the ACOG bulletin. There you go. Also, those who have um, um, uncontrolled um, stomatitis, that's because of a vitamin deficiency. Those who have extra skin manifestations like dermatitis, 
uh, dermatitis herpetiformis. That's an indication to check for sprue. And of course, those who have a family history of celiac disease, especially in the first degree relative, those should be assessed or screened for celiac disease. Man, do they make gluten-free tacos? I mean, would that be a good thing? I don't know if I could survive gluten-free, to be honest. I mean, like I said, I'm not the healthiest person. I try to eat healthy. But man, I mean, I'm part Hispanic. Gosh, everything has gluten in it, doesn't it? I mean, pan, I mean, bread. Half of our meals come with bread and tortillas, for heaven's sakes. Okay, fine. Let's keep going. On that depressive note that there's no gluten-free tacos that I'm aware of, let's go into antibody screening, okay? So again, you can do endoscopy, but you can also do uh, serum levels and check for certain antibodies against the issue here that's at play, all right? So if you can do an antibody against transglutaminase, gliadin, and endomycium, how about that? Okay, and I'm going to say those again in a minute, but those are the three main types of autoantibodies that you can check in the serum. It is against, it's the antibody against transglutaminase, gliadin, and endomyosum. If you don't know what those are, you can look at it in the reference or just ask your friendly GI consultant about it. But there's something else that you can do. You, you can look at on a tissue biopsy, uh, you can send the tissue for transglutaminase and endomycin IgA because those, according to the college and according to the world of GI, have the best sensitivity and specificity, okay? So remember, you can do antibody levels for transglutaminase gliadin, and endomycium, or you could do a tissue biopsy and specifically look for an IgA test against transglutaminase or endomycium in that tissue sample. So it's either serum samples or biopsy-based. So if this sounds pretty scary, like, I don't know if I want a diagnosis, the short answer is yes, you want the diagnosis. And here's why. There was a population-based study that was published in Human Reproduction not long ago in 2018 that really got a lot of attention as it should have, okay? The title is Reproductive Life in Women with Celiac Disease, a Nationwide Population-Based Matched Control Study. This was really well done. I'm explaining what happened here, okay? This is not in the U.S., this was a Danish study. And here's why having a diagnosis is so vital. Because once you know what it is, you get rid of gluten, you can dramatically increase your health outcomes, including reproductive issues, all right? So in this study, women who had undiagnosed celiac disease were more likely to have miscarriage or even stillbirths and fetal growth restriction than those who never got the diagnosis compared to those who had the diagnosis and then did something about it. In other words, implemented a gluten-free diet, okay? So all to say that in those who went on with their, their GI symptoms or misdiagnoses that got that wrong, they ended up having true pregnancy complications. And ACOG recognizes this as well. We've already talked about the miscarriage issues. We talked about infertility from the gynecology standpoint, but it has also been linked to low birth weight, fetal growth restriction, and stillbirth. So if a patient has a known celiac diagnosis and it's, it's been well done and it's, it's diagnosed correctly and they're not following their gluten-free diet, potentially that's an indication for antepartum fetal surveillance. I mean, you got to do serial ultrasounds to look for fetal growth restriction. But all of this is, is, is fixable. It's ameliorated. Did I use that word right? Yes. Is ameliorated, made better um, by just sticking to a gluten-free diet. That is the 
first-line treatments, not medication. In some cases, you can do steroids, but, but there is no FDA-approved medication for celiac disease because it's so responsive to dietary care. Now, in, in true disclosure, they are investigating some therapies that are monoclonal attacking the antibodies that hit the, the, the small bowel lumen. Okay, that, those are under fast-tracked um, designation right now. The problem is you, you're, you're, it's a great Band-Aid, but you're not fixing the problem, which is just avoid gluten. Do y'all get that? Uh, that's different than like Crohn's. That's like, oh man, that, that may not be dietary. Yes, diet can give you flares, but that's beyond dietary origin. You got to just treat that inflammation uh, uh, at its core. But because this is linked, we know it causes this autoimmune condition. That's an insult of gluten. We'll just avoid gluten. But as we've mentioned before, easier said than done. So back to this study that was published in Human Reproduction. Here's what they found, okay? The super interesting. Watch. Overall, there wasn't any difference in the number of pregnancies between the women who later got a celiac disease diagnosis and the women who did not. And the reason was once they had the diagnosis and they implemented dietary change, their outcomes were no different than as if they did not have the condition. However, for the years prior to having the celiac diagnoses, those women were much more likely to have miscarriage or even a stillbirth than expectant mothers who never developed the condition. So y'all follow this. Here's how this worked. Hey, we're going to look at this database. Who got a diagnosis of celiac disease and who are women? Great. Now let's go look back in the years prior to your diagnoses and, and take a look at your reproductive history. Now, I get that it's a database search and it's a lot of retrospective uh, data gathering and who knows if there were other insults involved or not. But even after stratifying for that, the only thing that popped up was, wow, when, when you had this diagnosis and then you implemented a gluten-free diet, your outcomes were no different as if you didn't have the condition. How about that? Does that make sense? So the whole issue here is not knowing is bad, right? Not knowing you have diabetes and it going for 20 years is bad. Not knowing you have celiac disease isn't just a, a bother with your GI symptoms uh, and, and you know sometimes affects your quality of life. This is bad because it's linked to other potential conditions due to malabsorption and vitamin deficiency. So that's why you got to talk to your patients, do a thorough history, do a review of systems. Hey, any food make you kind of whack? And like, oh, I can't eat dairy. Oh, well, that's lactose intolerance. Anything else? I don't think so. Okay, fine. And, and bring them back specifically for that information because this is something that is fixable almost entirely by a gluten-free diet, okay? But of course, avoiding wheat, barley, rye, and any of those derivatives is easier said than done. Um, but again, this, this is tied to not just pregnancy issues, but even getting pregnant. There was a, comment, uh, a comment, uh, commentary on, on this article that was published that went online that the, the physician who was at, the physician was out of India, made the following statement. I think it's a pretty strong statement, um, but it is rooted in the evidence. So this physician stated, quote, I would strongly suggest that women with infertility or those having recurrent miscarriage also have testing for celiac disease, end quote. Notice they said also have testing, not like that's the only thing that can cause it. Still look for diabetes, still look for structural abnormalities, look for antifossilipid antibody syndrome, but don't stop there. How many times do we go, hey, you don't have thyroid issues, your uterus looks fine on 3D ultrasound, I don't see a septum, it seems to be okay, um, you know, you're, you're, uh, you don't have diabetes, your thyroid's all right, you don't have APA, antifossilipid antibody syndrome, um, as far as we can tell. So I think you're good. 
well, wait a minute. Did you go back and look at potential these micronutrients for malabsorptive issues? Because celiac disease and ACOG says uh, even these malabsorption conditions are linked to poor reproductive outcomes, including problems with fertility. I am thankful that there are these new medications that are at least are on the horizon because um, if, if we can go from a chronic disease to a potentially reversible condition, then that would be huge, right? And, and that's what one, uh, one medication in development is trying to do. Back in August of 2019, the FDA actually approved uh, an application for a new drug uh, development protocol for ActoBio, all right? So ActoBio, this was an oral biological medication that could potentially, quote, have the reversal of celiac disease, end quote. Pretty interesting, and but you know definitely not there yet. All right, so this medication include uh, a bacterium which was a Lactococcus uh, lactic, which is specifically engineered to express the gliadin peptide in combination with an immunomodulating cytokine that could potentially work at the at the at the mucosal layer of the small bowel and reverse some of these changes, okay? Now, this was, again, this this hasn't been approved yet and it is still currently in development, but this was back in 2019 and I don't have the status of this uh, to see what happened. I couldn't find any further development for ActoBio to try to reverse this condition. And who knows? Maybe one day we are going to have this, this, this biological treatment for celiac disease. But right now, the mainstay of treatment is absolutely behavioral and dietary. I did look up on the FDA's Fast Track Approval uh, webpage, and, and there is nothing yet that is specifically FDA approved on the biological side uh, for this condition. But again, whether it is this uh, new development of this new medication, uh, or if it's a monoclonal antibody that's also being looked at to try to attack this condition, um, we're just not there yet. But it would be great. Look, we thought PCOS, for heaven's sakes, was chronic. You just can't get rid of it. We now know that that's not the case. You can reverse some of those metabolic issues and reverse some of that insulin resistance. Absolutely. Um, well, the same thing is going on here with celiac disease because gluten sensitivity is just so prevalent and it's getting worse that this monoclonal antibody, one of them it actually comes from from Australia, and there's some site investigators here in the U.S. as well uh, that, that are looking to attack this thing uh, on the molecular level, at the antibody level. But again, we are not quite there yet. All right, listen up. As we wrap this up, here's our last rapid fire quick things to remember about celiac disease as it relates to women's health care, fertility, and pregnancy. Number one, don't take the diagnosis for granted. Make sure that the patient has gone through the appropriate diagnostic channels to seal in the diagnosis. Just because she feels better by eating gluten-free doesn't mean that she has gluten sensitivity and neuropathy, okay? So get the proper diagnosis. Number two, make sure that your patient who says they have IBS have also gone through the appropriate diagnostic criteria workup to see if they really do have IBS. And remember, every patient with IBS has celiac disease until proven otherwise because the two share very similar symptoms and presentation. Number three, Remember that having a diagnosis isn't necessarily the best in the world because you don't really want to have anything, but it's much better than never knowing at all, especially since right now the standard treatment can make this condition 
almost curable, which is avoid the offending agent, which is avoiding gluten. So don't let it go without a diagnosis. Number four, remember that right now, even though there's new medications on the horizon for this, the easiest way to prevent not only long-term obstetrical issues and potentially fertility issues, but overall just to protect your health overall because of micronutrient depletion and malabsorption, ask these questions so your patients can have the appropriate identification, uh, workup, and of course, treatment. And our last one is, back and forth some years ago, there was this concern about, well, do patients with celiac disease, do they need anticoagulation in pregnancy? Short answer is no. Follow the traditional guidelines for a VTE prevention. Right now, ACOG does not consider celiac disease to be an indication, an independent indication for anticoagulation for VTE prevention at this time. All right, Anna, you see what your simple text message unleashed today? My goodness, I mean... It's so much good stuff. So here's how this works, right? So I, I'm running to clinic this morning to my uh, to my practice on campus, and I get the text. I'm like, oh, I know. It's, it's, it's always great to hear from her. I mean, just from, from all of our former residents, uh, we have these great relationships. Kat Jimenez is another one, Dr. Jimenez, who's graduated, what, two years ago, two, three years ago? Uh, and we still have this this great communication. That's how medicine should be. I love that. Um Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so she texted, and I'm like, oh, we got to talk about that. So then, boom, I automatically fired off uh, to a member of my team. I'm like, hey, we're doing celiac today. And, of course, I got back, aren't you in clinic? I'm like, yes, I'm in clinic. I'm doing it in between patients, and when I'm done, we're going to knock this out. Uh, And so, and it's... Look, one of the benefits of reading a bunch of crap is that you, you have all these little, I have folders for folders for my folders, all right? And so I have this whole thing of of GI conditions uh, and women's health. So I just pulled it out. We, we put this together quickly uh, in, in an attempt to be thorough and evidence-based and, and get this out uh, in, in a timely fashion. So um, this is what we do. So anyway, Anna, I hope you found that helpful. Always good to hear from you and keep up the great work. And for the rest of you, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.